We're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 34 as we continue on in our series this summer, a summer of Psalms. We've got this week and one week left. Uh, Pastor John will be preaching, I believe, the 23rd Psalm next week, and that will be our last Psalm, and then we're going to be blessed uh, the last week in August, so two weeks from now, to have uh, our brother Nate Bishop, pastor of Forest Baptist Church, coming to to bring a word for us. Uh, If it stands, as we talked about it, he's going to be preaching from the book of Philippians, Uh, but I left it up to him. I trust that the same spirit that's at work in us is the spirit that's at work in him, and so God's going to lead him to what we need to hear, but I'm excited for that. I encourage you to be here, but I want to invite you to stand as we read together Psalm chapter 34 in its entirety. I know we, we read it as the call to worship, but it was so fitting for a call to worship. So we're going to dive into it a little bit this morning. Psalm chapter 34. This is concerning David when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech who drove him out and he departed. Verse 1, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out. And the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, and he saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. And this morning, I want to I title this message, Reclaiming Our Wonder. Reclaiming Our Wonder. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning is simple. That as we look at your word, that you would fill us with a renewed sense of wonder for just how amazing you are. God, I pray that you would Give me both physical and spiritual strength as I seek to proclaim your words to your people. Move in this place for your fame, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Reclaiming our wonder. 
You know, one of the joys of being a parent, some of you are parents in this room, one of the joys of being a parent is that you have countless opportunities to watch your children experience first. I remember the first time that Aliyah and I took Emery and Thea to the beach. We got in around dinner time, so it was a little too late to put on swim trunks and go for a swim, especially with children. But we wanted to see the ocean, so we unpacked our stuff at our rental house. Uh, first thing we did was get back in the car and drive a little ways to the beach parking lot so we could go for a quick evening walk on the beach. I, I remember vividly uh, their, their response. I remember their face. They were just amazed at how much water there was. They were taken back when they looked out and all that they could see was ocean. I remember their surprise when the salty waves swept over their toes for the first time and it was warm. I remember as they stood, one of my favorite mental pictures, as they stood side by side and just instinctively threw their hands out to feel that breeze that you can only feel when the open water meets the open land. They were in awe of what they were experiencing and I realized that though I too am amazed at the ocean, that their wonder and their awe was so much greater than mine in that moment. I've had moments in my life where things that once took my breath away have become somewhat mundane and ordinary. I'm reminded of another time. I was reminded of this with my wife, Aaliyah. I told her yesterday that she was going to be in my introduction, and she got nervous, and she's like, well, just give me a heads up, but I wouldn't tell her what it was. Uh, It's a good story. Don't worry. I remember when we first got married, we were driving to South Carolina. I used to live in South Carolina, so we were going to go visit some friends, spend some time with them, right, because you want your friends to like your wife. Uh, So we were just going to go hang out for a little while. And the drive, the drive down to South Carolina is an incredible drive. It takes you through the rolling hills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It takes you uh, across the beautiful Smoky Mountains. It's windy. There are walls of of hills and mountains all alongside of you. Now, you've got to remember something about my wife, those of you who don't know her. She's from the Midwest. In the Midwest, you don't have hills and mountains. Like, I remember the first time that we flew, where was it, North Dakota? We flew into North Dakota, I realized I, I want to be claustrophobic. I like that, right? We, we're driving and you could see so far. It, it freaked me out. There wasn't a hill in sight. And so that's what she's used to, kind of this like flat land. And it, it, it's scary to me. Uh, I guess I like confined spaces. But I remember as we were driving to South Carolina, Aaliyah was amazed. She said, there's just walls of green hills. She was amazed at the towering mountains and I remembered in that moment that I used to have that same awe when I made that drive but the drive had become so mundane I'd made it so many times back and forth from Louisville to South Carolina that I just didn't really pay much attention to it some of the the wonder was gone for me and you see the reason I'm telling you these stories is because I want you to to try to see that 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 familiarity with something can often diminish the sense of wonder even of the most wondrous things, that familiarity with something can diminish our sense of wonder. And I wonder this morning if perhaps that's not true of many of us in this room. If perhaps we have become so familiar with the most wondrous thing, perhaps we've become so familiar with the most wonderful being that we've lost some of our wonder and awe. You see, the test of whether or not you've lost your wonder comes in how you live your life. 
And in the psalm that we just read, we, we catch a glimpse of David's awe and wonder of God. And we see how this awe and wonder transforms not only what he says about God, but how he lives in relation to God. And so this morning, what I want to do is I, I want to walk through this psalm, Psalm 34, and, and I'm going to try to pull some points out, some focal points about, about what we learn and what we see from David's wonder. And my hope is that by the end, by the grace of God, maybe this morning we can reclaim a little of the wonder that may be missing in some of our lives when we think about the Lord. And so the psalm begins there in verses 1 through 3 with a declaration of praise. And, and it starts to reveal David's wonder. I want you to see it. Look, look again at verses 1 through 3. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt His name together. You see, verse 3 there is so important. It's simple, but it's profound. Because in that verse, David proclaims two essential truths. He says that God is great and that God is worthy. Now, I want you to catch this. This is so important. David is not simply spouting off some things that he is supposed to say as a religious man. These are not just spiritual platitudes. The greatness of God and the worth of God causes David to stand in awe and wonder like the child on the ocean shore. David is overwhelmed by the magnitude and majesty of just how great God is. And I want to... I want to talk about that for a moment. You see, I think we, and I'm, I'm speaking to myself here too. I think often we unintentionally diminish our view of the magnitude of God because we don't think about Him as we should. You see, we, we get so fixated on the things of this world that God begins to just seem small to us. We get stuck on our problems. We get, we get stuck thinking about our job. We, we get distracted by the things of this world. And as a result of our thoughts, our thoughts of God become less frequent and, and they become less significant. And, and we start to see God, again, unintentionally as smaller and smaller and smaller. And as a result, God seems less and less significant to us. And before we know it, we've lost our awe and wonder. We can talk about the Lord with no sense of wonder and no sense of awe. It's just something we do but 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 I want to be honest with you it's it's hard to be astonished these days I mean we, we've got to be aware of that it is it is hard to be astonished these days you and I are inundated with so much information that I think we've lost some of our sense and wonder I mean we're not we're not in awe of acts of heroism anymore because you can turn on Instagram and find a page and just scroll through them. All these amazing things that people have done. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not in awe of creation anymore. Because we can, we can Google it. We can see every landmark that's on this, this earth. We can read about it and learn its history. We can go and see it and it's just kind of lost its, its, its luster, excuse me. It's hard to even be astounded by the good gifts of God anymore. We're not astounded by the church. Because now you can flip over your iPhone and listen to the best praise music. 
You can listen to the best preaching and never, never have to leave your bed. Thank you for listening to me, by the way. So I had to lighten it up a little bit. And we're not, a, we're not astonished by grace anymore. Because we've rationalized and psychologized away sin to be nothing more than just biological abnormalities in people. And so grace just isn't as significant anymore. Good gifts of God. We've lost our astonishment. And we've, just be honest, we've lost our astonishment with sex. Because now, because of the internet, it's become a commodity to be enjoyed whenever you want to click on a button rather than seen as this amazing gift from God that's to be used for His glory. We, we struggle to be astonished with anything. Maybe it's just me. But I do want you to know that this problem isn't just unique to us. We can't just blame it on the internet, though it doesn't help. This goes back to the earliest writing of Scripture, to the book of Job. You remember the story of Job? Uh, I know I reference it a lot, but I like the story of Job because I feel like it's such a a telling picture of the human experience. Job, the Bible says, is one of the most righteous men who's ever lived on the earth. So he's already got one up on most of us. And Satan goes to God and he says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He only praises you. He only blesses you. He's only righteous because you've given him all this good stuff. And so God says, all right, take it away. Don't hurt him. So it gets stripped away from him, and Job, Job responds in a way that I, I would hope that I would respond, but I know myself well enough to know that I'm not one of the best of us. And Job basically says, I came into this world naked. I'm going to leave naked. I don't need this stuff. The name of the Lord be praised. He was still filled with awe and wonder of who God is. But Job, throughout the book, starts to get distracted. He starts to get distracted by the sores on his body. He starts to get distracted by his friends who are blaming all of this on him. He starts to get distracted by his wife, his sweet wife, who says, why don't you just curse God and die? He starts to get distracted, and you can see as you read the story of Job, you can almost see him just losing his sense of awe and wonder as where he starts with the name of the Lord be praised, that statement slowly starts to appear less and less and less. The glory of God ceases to be his focal point, less and less and less it happens in the story, and finally you come to the point where where Job has just lost his sense of awe and wonder with God. He's been distracted by the struggles of this life, and his pain and his sorrow and he just doesn't see God as glorious but we learn a lesson in God's response to Job you see what will reclaim our awe is a renewed vision of how great God is and that's exactly what God does for Job God reminds Job of his resume that's what he does God doesn't deal with Job's Job's complaint. He doesn't deal with his struggles. He says, if I'm going to reclaim your awe and wonder, let me just give you my resume, Job. Let me tell you a little bit about who I am. And God says, Job, maybe you forgot about me. 
But I'm the God who created the universe. I'm I'm the God who stretched the expanse out wide and sprinkled the darkness with stars. I'm the God who laid the foundation of the earth and shaped it into its spherical form. I'm the God who told the waters to stop at this point. And I have walked every inch of the ocean deep. I'm the God who formed the land and carpeted it down with, with grass and then tacked it with lilies and roses. I'm the God who carved the deep valleys and pulled the mountains up by their peaks. I'm the God who tells the sun to go to bed and when to wake up and I've never been late with the sunrise because I never sleep nor slumber. I'm the God who breathes and this man fashioned out of clay comes to life. I'm the God who knows the numbers of hairs on every life that I'm created. I'm the God who has no beginning and who will have no end. I am the God who was content all by myself and in myself but I wanted to create somebody to love. I'm the God who loves you but does not need you. I am the God who is faithful, who is true, I keep my word. I never falter. I never fail. I am your God. And you see, like Job, sometimes we just need to be reminded of God's resume. He is great and glorious. He is majestic and powerful. He is worthy of worship and praise. And see, David in Psalm 34, he knows this. So when David says, proclaim the Lord's greatness with me, let us exalt his name together. He is standing in wonder and awe. Just how amazing God is. But I want you to see that this isn't a fleeting recognition for David. See what he says there in verses one and two. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord and the humble will hear and be glad. David's wonder of God is so grand that all that he can do with every breath that is in his body is praise God who is worthy. In other words, make it more practical, David is saying, I'm not going to treat you, God, like one of my friends who I get together with every Every now and again when I, when I want to have a good time. I'm not going to treat you, God, like my employer who I work for because I get something from them. I'm not going to treat you, God, like my doctor who I go and see when I need a little bit of expertise, when everything goes wrong and it's beyond my ability to fix it. No, David says, I'm going to treat you like my God who is worthy of my life and my all. And if we are ever going to reclaim our wonder, We have to recognize, we have to see the worth and the greatness of our God. David knows who God is. He knows who he is. And so he says, God is great and God is worthy. But what's interesting is that this knowledge that David has, it comes from somewhere. It comes from somewhere. This leads to the second thing I want you to see in Psalm chapter 34, and it's that, it's that David's wonder is situational and covenantal. David's wonder is situational and covenantal. Here's what I mean. David has things to look at to see how grand God is. He doesn't have to try to figure it out on his own how amazing God is. He has things that he can look to. Look with me again at verses 4 through 7. David says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man, David says, this poor man, me, I, I called out to the Lord. 
He heard me. He saved me from all my troubles. He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. There are two things that David looks at in these verses which which cultivate within him a wonder and an awe of God. And the first thing that David looks at is his own life. It's situational. David's wonder flows out of his very own situation. Look at what he says again in verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Verse 6. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. And what David is saying is, I know God is great. I know God is strong. I know God is good. Because in my very own life, I have seen God show off. I have seen Him make a way when there was no way. I have seen His goodness in my own life. And even as David is writing Psalm 34, this psalm of praise is a result of a particular situation where God made a way. Did, I know it wasn't on the screen, but did you catch the superscript there at the beginning of Psalm 34? It is inspired by God. It says concerning David when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech who drove him out and he departed. Y'all remember the story of when David acted crazy for a minute? I'll be honest, I forgot about it. I saw that superscript and I said, what in the world? David acted insane. And then I read the story. It's a funny story. Let me remind you of it. You see in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David's on the run from King Saul. This is before he's king. Saul is still king. And so David's friend Jonathan, who just happens to be Saul's son, he warns David in in 1 Samuel 21, listen, my dad is trying to kill you. You got to remember, this is after David has already killed Goliath. This is after David has proved himself to be favored by God. And Samuel at this point has already anointed David and told him that God had chosen him to be the next king of Israel. And the current king Saul wants nothing to do with that. He wants David dead. So David is running for his life. And it's interesting because in Psalm chapter 21, or 1 Samuel 21, David, David flees to Gath, which is a, a Philistine territory. It's ruled by King Abimelech. But you read in 1 Samuel 21 that Abimelech doesn't want anything to do with David. He knows who David is. He knows who Saul is. He knows, it even says in 1 Samuel 21, that Abimelech knows that, that Saul has killed thousands of Philistines in battle and David has killed 10,000 in battle. And so Ab- Ab- Abimelech wants nothing to do with this, this situation. And perhaps even, I, I was trying to put myself in, in, the, in the mind of King Abimelech, perhaps he thought, man, if I turn David over, Saul's going to kill him, which means I'll be rid of David because he's killed a lot of my people, and Saul, I'll probably be on his good side. This might be a win-win. And so whatever he thought, David, when he arrived, he knew that it wasn't safe for him to be in Gath and to be around King Abimelech. And so what does David do? He acts insane. Listen to what David does after he hears that the king wants nothing to do with David. 1 Samuel 21, verses 12 through 13, it says, David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish, that's King Abimelech, of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. This is in the Bible. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Okay, 
pause. This is the man anointed by God to rule Israel. And he's running around, like, like my five-year-old writes on walls. And he's just scribbling on walls. And he's drooling, like, like just letting it sit in his beard. But it works. Because this is how the king responds immediately after that in verse 14. The king says, look, you can see this man is crazy. Why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people? that you have brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? Again, it's in the Bible. The Bible's a great book. It really, like, there is comedy in this. I mean, can you just see King of Bloom? Like, I got enough crazy people running around. What am I going to do with David? I don't even want to bother with him. But with that decision to act crazy, David was saved from the king of Gath, potentially turning David over to Saul, or even worse, killing him himself himself. And as a result of this moment, this encounter, David pins Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is a response to when David acted crazy and his life was spared. But here's the fascinating thing, fascinating thing about that to me. <clears throat> Nowhere in Psalm 34 does David for a moment praise his own cunning David does not boast about how he was able to trick a king to preserve his life. David takes no responsibility for his deliverance because David knows a truth that is yet to even be pinned in Scripture that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. David knows that any deliverance that has taken place is not because David was so smart, not because he played the king for a fool by acting like a fool, it's because David understands that anything good, any blessing, any deliverance in my life is the result of a God who is great and worthy to be praised. Yes, David's, or yes, God's greatest gift is salvation, but that's not his only gift. Everything that is good is a gift from God. Every blessing in your life is a gift from God. And that should have got a couple more amens. Y'all aren't hearing me, so I'm going to try to break it down for you. You did not get that promotion at work because you're a great employee all by yourself. You don't have your health because you are the greatest physical specimen to walk this earth. You don't have your spouse because you are the best looking person that God ever created. And I don't care what they say about you. It's just not true. You didn't get that degree because you're so smart. You have all of those things because God has been good to you. The reason you have food on your table, the reason you have a roof over your head and clothes on your back, the reason you woke up this morning with breath in your lungs and a voice to praise our great God is because he has been so good to you. And I ought to have at least two or three people in this room who can say, I know that God is good because God has been good to me. You can testify that I shouldn't be here. Some of you can say, I shouldn't have made it home from the bar when I left with all those drinks in my system. I shouldn't be alive with all the substances that I've put in my body. I shouldn't be standing if you only knew the pain that I had been through in my life. But God has been good to me. See, David is saying, you don't have to convince me that God is good. I don't need an exegetical argument. I don't need your theology. David says, I know that God has been good because I've been in some situations where if God hadn't been good, I wouldn't be here. And David says, yet here I stand. 
And that's some of our testimony this morning as well. But you see, David's wonder and awe of God goes even deeper than just his own situation. See, David's wonder is not only situational, it's, all, it's also covenantal. Because look at what he says there in verses 5 and 7. David takes his situation and understands this to be true of all God's people. He says in verse 5, those who look to him, not just me, those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. David stands in awe of God, not only because God has been good to him, but God's goodness to him is a testimony that our God is a covenantal God, that he keeps his word. You see, how is it that David can say with confidence, anyone who looks to God will have joy? How is it that he can say they will never be put to shame? How does he know that the Lord encamps around those who fear him and that God will rescue his people? Yes, David has experienced it, but how does he know it to be true of everyone? You see, David does not ground his confidence solely in how God has treated him, though it is evidence of who God is. He grounds his confidence in who God is. David knows that God is good to all who call on him because God is a God of covenant. God always keeps his word. David knows that God promised Abraham descendants who would experience the blessing of God. David knows that God told Moses that if the people will trust me as God, I will be their God and they will be my people. See, God has promised the church that he would work all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Our our God keeps his word because our God is a God of covenant and David is in awe of this promise keeping God. Now, let me just pause for a minute. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm mis, misreading it a little bit, but it just seems like, seems like some people are just off. That's okay, right? We we don't come into this place as perfect people. It just seems like some people have some weight on their shoulders. And so let me, let me, just, let me just point this out to you. And hopefully this will just be an encouragement to you and just help, help cultivate some more awe and wonder. I mean, did you notice what David said in verse 7? That the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Yeah, th that's not just David using some symbolic language here. I mean, you want to talk about wonder. Do you realize that at this very moment, if you are in Christ, that there are angels that are protecting you? We read this in Hebrews 1 verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? If you're in Christ, you're going to inherit salvation. And that means that there are ministering spirits. There are angelic beings sent out by God to serve those of you who are in Christ. Now listen, I'm not talking about the cliche like guardian angel that we joke about. I'm talking about the fact that at this very moment that there are angels who are ministering to your spirit and fighting spiritual battles for you and you, like me, are probably completely unaware of it. But that's just how good God is. Because even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it, He keeps His word. He is for you and not against you. 
and David's situational experience and the covenantal God that he knows causes him to just stand in awe and wonder of how amazing God is. But, but I want to I try to paint a picture of how all-encompassing this wonder is because not only is David filled with wonder and awe, but that wonder and awe spills out to those around him. That's, that's the third thing I want you to see this morning, that David's wonder spills out. David's wonder spills out. Look at verses 8 through 14. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Praise God. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil. And your lips from deceitful speech turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, I really want you to get this because this is so profound to me. Maybe you picked up on it. But what does David's wonder spill out as? Yeah, yeah, it's a song of praise. We see that in verse 1. I don't want to minimize that, but, but what else? David's wonder flows out of him as evangelism and discipleship. Just look at the words. He's talking to people around him. It's an invitation for people to join in. He says, come, come taste and see that the Lord is good. He is proclaiming the truth that how happy is the person who takes refuge in God. He says, any one of you holy ones, make sure you're fearing the Lord. For those who fear God will lack nothing. Right? Like David's preaching here. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. He says in verse 11, come children, listen to me. I will teach you. That's discipleship. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? And he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. That's teaching all that God has commanded. He says, turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, I don't want you to miss this. The fuel for David's evangelism and discipleship is not a program. It's not a church outreach event. Is not a friends and family Sunday. It is his, his all-consuming awe and wonder of who God is. And, and, and I'll be honest, this point was convicting to me because one of the things, you can ask the pastors, they'll tell you, one of the things that we have really been wrestling with is how to cultivate more evangelism and discipleship here at New Breed. Because New Breed has some strengths, but New Breed has some weaknesses. And let's call a spade a spade. One of our weaknesses is our evangelism and discipleship. We've been here for seven plus years, and we ain't seeing the community come to know Jesus. I've said it before, it's not because the community's not ready. Now listen, I'm not saying we won't run discipleship programs. We will. We're going to start some up in the fall, Lord willing, and if COVID gives us a break. I'm not saying we won't do church outreach events. We just did one. 
I'm not saying we won't do friends and family Sundays. We will. I long for the day when we can do that again. I am just keenly aware that none of that will sustain a passion for evangelism and discipleship. The only thing that will sustain a passion for evangelism and discipleship is if we are constantly standing in awe and wonder of who our God is. Like you see it with David, the words that just flow out of him, come taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not, it's not a track, right? It's not, it's not a canned gospel presentation. And I ain't mad about tracks. I want you to have a canned gospel presentation. But what flows out of him is just, it's an overflow of praise. God has been so good. I want you to come see how good God is. Come taste and see the goodness of God. Listen to me, church. I'm trying to make this point extremely applicable. The only way we will see this neighborhood transformed by the gospel is when the people of God stand in daily awe and wonder of who God is. So much so that it just spills out to our neighbors and those we encounter and they start to see and hear and believe that maybe this God really is great. Maybe he is worthy of our praise. Listen, yes, the world needs to see a people who are kind and compassionate. The world needs to see us caring for the poor and the marginalized. The world needs to see us fighting for justice wherever injustice is found. But what will win the world is when the people of God are truly in awe of God. I'm afraid we've lost that. I'm not just talking about us as a church. I'm just talking about Christianity in this country. I think we've lost that wonder of God. I was trying to think of a way to show it, and the best that I came up with was, again, maybe, maybe this is just the Lord working on me. Maybe, maybe y'all the holy rollers, and you like, he's off base here. Well, praise God. Then let that awe and wonder fill up, spill out of you so I can catch a glimpse of it. But I was asking a question, why is it that my worship looks so different in here than it does out there? Why is it that, that, that the nearness to God in this place is so strong and we can go out there and feel nothing? And I know it's not all about a feeling, but... And I started to think about it. I think I know what the answer is. Because in here, we're focused on one thing and one thing alone. The glory of God. Every scripture we read, every song we sing, every message we preach, it is all about cultivating a time of wonder and awe for who God is and what, what he has done. But the problem is we haven't cultivated those disciplines in our own life, so we go out there into the world and we get distracted. We get pulled in a thousand different directions and we forget we forget how good God is. We forget how amazing he is. We forget about what he has done for us because we are so distracted. And see, for David, he was committed to blessing the Lord at all times. He was determined to have God's praise on his lips all the time. And he was focused on letting others hear it and be glad. You see, here's the thing. If God is God, then he has the right to demand all of our lives. And if God is good, then our submission to him will be seasoned with the greatest joy. And we should stand in wonder at the fact that God has been so good to us.
I've been racking my brain around that concept. It came up last week in the sermon, but just again, still just thinking about the godness of God and the goodness of God. The godness of God, the fact that he is God means that he has the right to demand our allegiance, to demand our lives, to demand our all. But the fact that God is good seasons our submission to him with joy. And we should delight in that. That our submission to God is not meant to be a, a, is not meant to be a burden to be bared, but the greatest joy to be experienced. And that wonder and that awe should spill out of us to those around us. But I want to say this, that though our submission will be seasoned with joy, it does not mean that everything will be easy. But it does mean that we have hope. And that hope should lead to even more wonder. It's the final thing I want you to see this morning. It's that David's wonder leads to hope. And hope produces more wonder. David's wonder leads to hope, and hope produces more wonder. I know it says there on the, the screen that we get this from verses 15 through 22, and we do, but for the sake of time, I'm kind of driving this point home. I just want to draw your attention to the last few verses, specifically starting there in verse 19. David says, One who is righteous has many adversities. But the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones and not, not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. And all who take refuge in him will not be punished. You see, I want you to catch this because this is a beautiful thing that's happening in David's praise of God. As David's praise continues... His hope grows, and as his hope grows, it cultivates even more awe and wonder of who God is. But, but catch this, David's wonder grows, not in the absence of difficulty, but as a response to it. See, his, abs- his wonder grows not in the absence of difficulty, but in its presence. Because it's in the midst of suffering where God's deliverance is most clearly evident. And this provides David with even more hope. He acknowledges that, listen, if you want to be righteous, it's going to bring hardship. One who is righteous has many adversities. We know that. Scripture speaks of that. Those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. If you want to be righteous, you're going to have some adversities in front of you. But this is not a cause for alarm for David. Rather, it's another reason to praise because David knows that the greater the adversity, the greater the deliverance. But the Lord rescues him from them all. Here's what's so amazing. This hope of deliverance leads David to praise God all the more. But here's what's even more amazing about it. David, as he's writing this, he is thinking about deliverance from physical adversities. He's thinking about worldly kings and the problems that are before him. But even as David writes these words, inspired by the Spirit, he is prophetically pointing to an even greater deliverance. Because notice what David says there, beginning in verse 20. He protects all his bones. Bones, not one of them is broken. David thinks the Spirit's talking about him. David thinks that the Spirit's talking about his bones. 
But no, 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 the Spirit's pointing us to an even greater deliverance. David is prophetically pointing to the cross. Because remember, Jesus was crucified, and one of the most significant things that happens as the fulfillment of prophecies, when they come to break his legs, he's already dead. Not one of his bones was broken. And it is through the cross, and David doesn't necessarily know this, but it's through the cross that the words of verses 21 and 22 ring true, that evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. But the Lord redeems the life of His servants, and all who take refuge in Him will not be punished. Here's the thing, if you are looking for something to capture your heart and your mind, if you are trying to reclaim your wonder, look no further than the cross cross of Christ. Paul says in Romans 4.25 that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The praise of David that the Lord redeems the life of his servants and all who take refuge in him will not be punished be punished is fulfilled in the cross of Christ. If you want to see the full measure of God's grandeur, you want to taste the goodness of God, you want to experience the weight of his love, it is seen on the cross of Christ because we cannot forget for a moment how deep in that pit we were. And we rem- when we remember that, that we were deep in that pit, we will remember just how grand God is to reach down that far and pull us up to the place where we are now. We look to the cross of Christ and we see God's arms of grace stretched wide as He paid the debt that we owe. We marvel at the fact that though we were the wicked ones deserving death because of our sins, Jesus died in our place that we might see the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God once again. When we lost our wonder in the garden God restored it on the cross and the same place that restored it then is the same place that will reclaim it now so here's my prayer for you as we come to a close my prayer is that we would gaze at the cross and we would see the goodness and the glory and the greatness, and the worth, and the majesty of our God, and that David's declaration would be ours as well, that I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord, and the humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me, and let us exalt his name together. But church, if we lose our wonder, We lose our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, I pray. I pray that we would never grow tired of gazing at your glory. I pray that we would never... We would never become so distracted in this life that we would forget your worth and the treasure that you are. God, I pray that we will think about you often. And when we think about how good you have been, it will cause us to declare, hallelujah, God is worthy. Guard us, Lord, from the distractions of this life. 
Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and stand in awe and wonder. Help us to believe that in the midst of the greatest adversity, your deliverance is even greater. Help us to trust you, to be reminded that every good and perfect gift comes down from you. God, you have been so kind to us. And if we doubt it for a moment, I pray that we would look to the arms of grace stretched wide. As your son bled and died, that we might have eternal life. Thank you that you are strong to save. Help us to reclaim our wonder, Lord, because you are worthy of it. You are worthy. So even now as we prepare our hearts, Lord, and we're about to enter into a time of reflection, I pray, I pray that the Spirit would just move in this place. I don't know, God, what's in the hearts and the minds of everyone in this place. God, half the time I don't even know what's in my own heart and mind. But I pray that the Spirit would just be at work in this place. Cultivating and crafting a wonder for you that resonates through our whole life. Because you are worthy. Worthy. Help us to see you as glorious. In Jesus' name.